The name of the book is The Vice President's Black Wife, The Untold Story of Julia Chen. The author, Professor Amrita Chakrabarty Myers. Professor Myers is a history professor from Indiana University. She explains best what is between the covers of her book in the first paragraph of the introduction. In quotes, This is the story of an American family set in Great Crossing, Kentucky in the 19th century. It's a tale that seems typical at first glance. A plantation owner was sexually involved with an enslaved woman and had children with her. Dr. Myers continues, The union of Julia Ann Chen and Richard Mentor Johnson, a congressman from Kentucky who became vice president of the United States in 1837 under Martin Van Buren, is, however, anything but standard. I'm Juan, and I'm part of the team that produces C-SPAN podcasts. As a listener, you can help us continue to produce our quality podcasts about history, books, and current events with a tax-deductible contribution to C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Thanks for listening. Amrita Chakrabarty Myers, when did you first hear the name Julia Chen? I actually first saw a brief mention of her in a U.S. survey textbook when I was preparing to teach the early American history class here at Indiana University. Um, That would have been now at this point probably 13, 14, even 15 years ago. And it was really not about her. It was a very brief mention of Richard Mentor Johnson in this survey text. And it was not a complimentary mention. Uh, Essentially, the survey text was talking about how Johnson was not very popular in the 19th century with abolitionists because um, they used him as an example of you know, this typical Southern plantation owner slash politician who kept getting reelected to office despite abusing his female slaves. And in the context of that very brief snippet, they mentioned that he had had several, quote unquote, concubines or mistresses. That's the language that the survey text used, one of whom was Julia Chin, who he had been with for almost a quarter century and had two daughters with. But that was that was the extent of it. So when you saw the name, what was next for you? Well, I was I was really confused because I was just finishing up my first book and I I have a doctorate in U.S. history. I specialize in uh, 18th and 19th century America. Um, And how would I never heard of Julia Chin as a as an African-American women's historian in particular, as a historian of black women in slavery? And I had never even heard of Richard Johnson. And so I I actually went, you know, online to sort of see what I could find about them and was really I mean, sort of shocked, but maybe not necessarily surprised to discover that there was very little about Julia, but even less about, I mean, really not very much about Richard either. Um, The last time a biography had been written on him was 1932. And most of the material online was pretty salacious. It was very sort of this uh, prurient, voyeuristic kind of, oh, you know, the the vice president and his mulatto concubine, like that kind of, like those are literally the titles of some of these articles and websites. And none of none of this material was um, archivally researched. It was not uh, written with any sort of real source base. It was more sort of um, clickbait, almost like trying to get people to, you know, sort of read the most salacious material out there. And I thought to myself, okay, I, you know, 
I have to come back to this because I'm finishing my first book, but I really want to come back to this and do a little more investigation because this is a story that, um, you know, might warrant telling, right? That, that was kind of um, the next step that I had taken. And when I, when I did come back to it, um, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine and, you know, I said to her, you know, someone needs to write a book about Julia and her daughters. We need to know more about them. And she sort of looked at me and cocked her head and said, isn't that kind of what you do? <laughs> you know? So um, that that's sort of the very short version of how I came to to write this um, book, biography, family study of, of Chin and her daughters. Where is Julia Chen from originally? Well, we don't um, have her birth certificate or any um, clear birth records. She was born enslaved. Uh, we do know that it was uh, almost certainly somewhere in Kentucky, um, her mother, uh, Henrietta, was also was owned by Richard Johnson's parents, Robert and Jemima Suggett Johnson. And they had um, come out from Virginia to help settle the new um, Kentucky frontier um, eventual territory and state. And so given, um, given the fact that Henrietta was owned by them, Julia was also uh, owned by uh, the, the senior Johnsons. Um, she would have been born sometime in the 1790s. There's no clear date. It could be 1790. It could be as late as 1796 or 1797. But that that puts her her birth uh, squarely in Kentucky after the Johnsons uh, moved out to the territory. If I wanted to go to the site of where they all lived in your book, how would I get there? So Georgetown, Kentucky is um, the, the closest sort of population center to Great Crossing and Blue Spring Farm, where the family lived. And um, you would head down to Louisville, Kentucky um, on I-65, and then you would basically make a left onto I-64. And I-64 is the main highway that runs between Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky. And all along the way are all of the smaller towns, including the state capital, Frankfurt, and once you pass Frankfurt, very shortly thereafter, um, you're going to come to turnoffs for Georgetown. And that's really, that's the area where, um, that we're talking about is it's horse country. It's very close, maybe 15 minutes away from Lexington. Uh, it is surrounded, um, you know, it was and continues to be surrounded by a lot of horse farms. It's bluegrass country. What's the first thing you learned when you started researching that surprised you? Oh, that surprised me. Gosh, there were a lot of things that surprised me, I think. But um, probably the thing that has st stuck with me the longest and I find the most heartbreaking and poignant for me is that we we still don't know where Julia is buried. Um, there is no official grave site. There is no official grave marker. We know that Richard Johnson's parents and most of his extended kin are buried in the small family cemetery behind Great Crossing Baptist Church, which is the church that the family founded and where Richard and Julia and their daughters worshiped. It was about two miles away from Blue Spring Farm. And it was walking distance back in the day. Um, you know, we, we drive seven blocks now, but they, they would walk to church um, two miles and back. 
And there's a the family cemetery behind it. The Johnson Family Cemetery is now a historic marker site. And that's where most of the extended Johnson can are buried. Richard is buried in Frankfurt Cemetery with a large, very splashy monument because he was um, a hero of the War of 1812. He was a you know political powerhouse. And so that was sort of, well, that's where you'll find a lot of famous Kentuckians is in the Frankfurt State Cemetery. But we don't have um, a burial site for his wife, uh, for Julia. She most likely is buried on the original Blue Spring Farm property, uh, which was very common back in the day for large landholders to bury their, you know, their 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 partners, their children um, on their homeland. But that property is now no longer in the hands of the Johnson family descendants. It's split up between four different sets of owners, and the main house has disappeared. Um, there's no indication of where the original graveyards would have been. Um, and so one of the things that I'm hoping that this book will do is it will attra- attract enough attention that we can uh, convince those that have the equipment to come out and survey the land in order to find um, the, the graves, not only of Julia, but her younger daughter Adeline would have been buried there as well. Her older daughter Imogene um, Imogene and her husband lived on a farm just sort of adjacent across the creek um, when she after she got married, uh, you know, from the family. So her and her husband Daniel are buried on their on their farm property, but we don't we don't have any definitive information on where Julia or Adeline are buried. Well, obviously, come back to both Richard Johnson and Julia Chen. But first, where are you from? Mm. I was born and raised in Canada. Uh, so, um, you know, those who follow me on Twitter know that my handle is Countess Canuck for that reason. Um, and uh, born in Montreal, raised also in Toronto, and then out in Edmonton, Alberta, where my family still is today. But I moved to the U.S. back in the 90s to go to graduate school at Rutgers University. And that's where I you know, received my Ph.D., and then I moved to Indiana to take up the position here at Indiana University. So um, I've actually now been in the U.S. longer than I lived in Canada, and um, I have dual citizenship in both countries. Where did you get your undergrad work? I did my undergraduate in my at my home university in Edmonton, Alberta. It's called the University of Alberta. It's one of our major research uh, universities in Canada, and I received my bachelor's and my master's degrees from there. At the beginning of the book, you dedicate your work to your grandmothers. I need an explanation on this because your middle name is Chuck Rabardi and their Mm -hmm. name is Chuck Rabordi. Can you explain that? Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of variations on the spelling um, of um, Chuck Rabardi. I I mean, so that's my father's name, uh, which is why I hold it as my, as my middle name. And you can, you know, you can like literally find like every variation under the sun, like B-O-R-T-Y, B-O-R-T-T-Y, B-A-R, you know, T-T. I mean, there's so many different variations on the spelling. Um, I don't know how many other people spell it actually the way that we spell it, which is B-A-R-T-I. But that's um, that's the spelling that I mean, even even my father's brothers all spell it differently than he did. So my my both my grandmothers, interestingly enough, have the have the same last name, although that's purely coincidental. And what's that name from? What part of the world? Oh, so my um, my dad actually is um, he was originally born in he was born in Taka, which was then part of India. 
but that was pre-partition. And so um, the family had to leave when the war for partition broke out, and um, they they fled as refugees actually to to Calcutta. And my father grew up um, in Calcutta from about the age of ten onwards. Um, so that's and that's where that's where you know Chakrabarti or Chakrabarti would come from. How about mom? Where's she from? So, well, mom's story is a little bit. Um, lengthier and complicated, probably a little too complicated for for this show. But um, she she grows up in a small college town um, outside of Calcutta. It's um, actually the home. If if any of your listeners are familiar with Rabindranath Tagore, who is a pretty was a pretty famous poet, writer, philosopher, thinker from India. Um, there's actually a university um, in my mom's hometown dedicated to him. And that's where she that's where she grew up. So what do you consider? <clears throat> what race do you consider yourself? Well, I actually refer to myself as a woman of color because my family is actually like ethnically pretty diverse when you go back um, historically. Um, so there's there's African, there's you know, South Asian or Indian, right? Which is you know what we say um, in my family anyway is Indian. But there's Indian, there's African, um, and there's there's also European um, on my dad's side of the family. A few generations back, um, there might actually also be um, Chinese, but we're not 100 percent sure yet because these are all things that have been orally transmitted down, you know, culturally sort of through the family in terms of our stories. Um, but we haven't actually done the genealogical work to sort of, you know, track a lot of that. With uh, uh, as a person of, with mixed blood, mixed color, all that through your life in Canada and the United States, what kind of prejudice have you seen? Well, um, one of the things that I find really important to talk about, especially with my my Canadian friends, right? I still have so many friends that I went to um, all the way from elementary school through college with. Um, and I, I really talk to them very directly about the fact that it's easy to point the finger at other countries and other places and um, talk about how things are so bad there. Um, it's a way of sort of avoiding, right, um, the trash in your own backyard, for lack of a better word. Um, and so, you know, growing up, I grew up in a time and a place in Canada where Canadians didn't acknowledge that there was uh, slavery in their own history, which we know there was. And they also never they didn't acknowledge that black people existed in Canada, which they have for centuries, not just those who fled from the U.S., but because of Canadian slavery. And they also don't like to acknowledge that um you know, they never acknowledged that Canada had racism. You know, the, the party line when I was growing up was always, oh, uh, we are um, a multicultural society. We're like a stained glass window. All the various pieces are unique and beautiful and different, but together they make a gorgeous mosaic. Um, so there was, there was this unwillingness to face the truth of prejudice and racism in Canada head on at the at the smallest level all the way to the largest because of government sort of uh, state dictates and policy. Um, no recognition even also of the kind of horrific genocide that was perpetrated against uh, Indigenous Canadians, against First Nations peoples. Um, I mean, I was probably, I mean, I was one of a handful of non-white students um, in my elementary school 
and in my junior high school. It wasn't until I got to high school that there was actually more than like two hands worth of, and that's all, we're talking like Asian people, black people, right? Um, all, all different kinds of folks um, put together. Um, and so it was definitely a very, very difficult place to grow up. Um, Montreal and Toronto were much more diverse, but Edmonton in the 70s and 80s was not very diverse. Um, it is much more diverse now, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but we didn't grow up with um, a lot of role models in that sense. We didn't grow up uh, going to school with a lot of other people of color. And um, I still remember like really clearly incidents that happened when I was um, as far back as elementary school, people um, like, you know, hurling slurs at me on the playground, making insults about my last name, saying that they would never come to my house because it probably stank. Right. Because of the because we because your food is so disgusting. You know, those sort of those, those kinds of comments that were made um, to me when I was growing up, like not being included in certain social functions, things of that nature. Um, it was not. um and being, uh, you know, being like a girl, right? And then, you know, growing up as a as a teenager, uh, becoming a woman, a young woman in that place was extremely um, complicated on a whole host of um, levels. So I, I really try to like have these conversations with everybody uh, because I said, you know, it's it's you know, yes, I'm not saying that the United States doesn't have its issues and its problems. You know, having lived here for more than half my life now and being a scholar of African American history, that's very clear. Um, but uh, that doesn't absolve us as Canadians of looking to fix um, and heal the damage that's been done in our in our own country to people who are, are from there and who grew up there. How long have you been at Indiana University? This is the start. This is my 19th year on the faculty at Indiana University. I came right out of graduate school. Um, I started in um, the summer of 05. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Back to Julia Chen. What were the circumstances when she became the common-law wife of Richard Johnson, uh, and and what was the difference in their age? Well, um, because we don't know exactly when Julia was born, we have contrasting sort of oral histories um, uh, on her age. There's one set of testimonies that say she was born in 1790, another set from former enslaved laborers of the family of Richard and Julia who say that she was um, that she would have been born around 1796 or 97, and we can we date that because they they mentioned that when her daughter or her oldest daughter Imogene was born, um, Imogene was born in 1811. They um, are clear that she was 1811, 1812 that that Julia was only 14 or 15 years old, and so backdating from that that puts us to 1796 or 1797. We do have Richard's date of birth. Um, he was actually born uh, in what is now Louisville. It was called Beargrass, Kentucky back then in 1780. So the age span between them is at minimum 10 years. And at maximum, we're looking at 17 years of an age difference. And um, how their sexual alliance, partnership, relationship began um, 
is that he inherited her along with about a hundred other enslaved laborers from his father and mother. Um, he, you know, was by this point 30 years old. He was already serving um, in Congress. Uh, he and so his father gave him land to start his own plantation, his own farm, not too far away from uh, the senior Johnsons, only a, a couple of miles. Uh, because the senior Johnsons lived right next to Great Crossing Baptist Church where they worshipped, and the Blue Spring Farm today is about two miles away. So they gave Richard all this land, and he started building a house, and um, they, you know, he needed laborers, right, to be a successful planter. And so his father transferred almost 100 laborers over to his son. Um, and one of uh, one of those laborers was Julia Chin, and uh, her brother Daniel also came with her. But there's no record that her mother Henrietta came with them, so that means that they would have been taken away from their mom um, and moved to a different plantation site um, in 1810. Uh, when when Richard is um, starting up Blue Spring Farm, and within a year, uh, the two of them have become, uh, you know, sexually intimate, and they go on to be together for about 23 years, um, have, a, have two daughters together, um, and they're together until Julia passes away from a, in a cholera epidemic in 1833. As you know, you know oh, yeah. oh, oh so well that... Um, Richard Johnson was an elected official for about 34 total years, including being a vice president and congressman. Um, what, at what point did she die? How old did you figure she was? <clears throat> and what was his office that he held at the time? So she passes away in 1833, which would make her probably 36 or 37 years old if we're using the, the enslaved laborers family data. Um, if she was born in 1790, then the oldest she could have been is 43. So she's very young when she when she passes away in 1833. Um, Richard at that point is um, still serving in Congress. He's a congressman for Kentucky at that point in Washington, D.C. He will run for the vice presidency um, in 1835-36, and he will take up his for his term in office in 1837 uh, under Martin Van Buren, uh, who who was the president at the time. So the Van Buren and Johnson, um, you know, re, you know, sort of term of office is 37 to 41. By by which point Julia has passed away, um, but her life and her her very existence, their their relationship would be become a large part of the media circus surrounding uh, Johnson's run for the vice presidency in 35-36. Why was it a media circus? I always tell my, my students that uh, 19th century newspapers are uh, media are far more scandalous than the ones that, that we read today. We think that the media today is you know, problematic and that the political campaigns are ugly and people throw a lot of mud at each other. And I was like, they have nothing on what was happening in the 19th century. That was some really, really uh, dark stuff that was going on. Uh, Richards, even though Julia had passed away, the opposition party used his um, relationship with her uh, to basically start a negative, you know, political campaign. Do you want an, amal an amalgamationist? Because that's the term they used was amalgamation for interracial sex back then. They said, do you want an amalgamationist as your vice president? Right. And there's just a lot of really like ugly, vitriolic newspaper material um, that, you know, constantly refers back to Julia uh, in a really derogatory manner and to her two daughters. 
uh, referring to them with all kinds of like racial pejoratives and slurs and words that we would never use today, um, talking about their skin color, talking about their hair, um, and saying like, you know, he's going to bring his quote unquote woolly headed wife and yellow children into the White House. Um, like what happens if Van Buren dies and Johnson becomes president, right? There's all of these these really ugly things that are being said about Johnson's deceased partner and his daughters. But it's not just the opposition party that does this, even within his own party, the Democrats. The Democrats are divided on Richard. Um, there are some who support him. And he, of course, has the backing of Andrew Jackson, who is the outgoing president. But Martin Van Buren didn't even want Johnson to be his running mate. Um, and Jackson sort of said, well, this is my guy. You have to take him. Um, and there's a lot of Southern Democrats, of course, who hate Richard because, again, he had this public, open relationship with a black woman. I mean, there are lots of Southern politicians and uh, law- lawmakers who are having sexual relationships with black women, enslaved black women who they own. But they don't, they lie about it. They hide it. They don't talk about it. They're not open about it. They have white wives and white families. And then they have this other relationship going hidden in the quarters. Johnson's super open about it from the very beginning. He refers to Julia as his wife. Um, Everyone locally and in D.C. knows that she's his only wife. He doesn't have a white wife. Um, His only children are, you know, these biracial children that he has with Julia. And so... Julia runs the plantation in his absence. She makes business deals. She signs contracts. Um, everyone knows that when Richard's away, she is the in charge of Blue Spring Farm. And, and this is why it's such a problem, because people in, you know, people in his own party who are you know, pro-slavery, um, they're, they're horrified because he's, he's living his life out loud, basically. And they're like, You know, the newspapers even said we could have, you know, the voters could have forgiven him anything if only he had simply just been discreet. Right. Had he been circumspect, had he not spoken about this, no, people would have ignored what was going on behind closed doors at Blue Spring Farm. But he threw it in everyone's face and he was trying to force people to accept Julia and their daughters together. And that was anathema. So you've got that's why it's a media circus, because it's not just the opposition party, but it's even detractors within the Democratic Party. The D- the DNC that year is really a clown show because there are there are elector you know there are there are whole delegations who don't who refuse to vote for Richard. Um, it, it's it just devolves into a lot of of ugliness. And when he runs for the presidency, the electoral college votes, the electors from Virginia refuse to cast their ballots for Richard, even though they cast them for Van Buren. So this is the first, you know, and the only time that the Senate has to confirm the vice presidential candidate by by vote. Um, and he he gets in because the Democrats have the numbers. Um, but it's really clear that like the whole thing from start to finish was just a battle. And it was a really ugly battle that took place in the press, um, not in, not just in Kentucky, but across the country. I'm, I'm going to read this only because it <clears throat> it kind of reflects on what you're just saying. But you quote somebody by the name of Duff Green in your book, who was a U.S. Telegraph editor. <clears throat> and this will describe the language that was used, and uh, I'm, I'm just going to read it so people listening can know how strong it was. He is, by the way, when was he quoted? At what point? Do you, do you remember? When, I'm sorry, when was Richard quoted no, as no, saying? No, no, Duff Green. Uh, and let me read the quote. You'll remember it when I read yeah, it. Yeah, sure, of course. It may, this is in quotes, it may be a matter of no importance to mere political automatons 
whether Richard M. Johnson is a white or black man, whether he is free or slave, or whether he is married to or has been in connection with a jet-black, thick-lipped, odiferous Negro wench by whom he has reared a family of children whom he has endowed to force upon endeavored, excuse me, to force upon society as equals. But thank God to the great majority of people of the United States, we may with safety address ourselves on this subject with the full conviction that in their breast we shall find a response to Ellipses' patriotic feelings. How normal was that kind of language back then in, in, the, in the papers about Richard Johnson? Very common. Um, and that's why I said it was, uh, there were Kentucky papers that spoke of him with equal, you know, disgust. It's particularly the papers out of Lexington and, I mean, and Louisville. The big papers there had editors who were uh, very anti-Johnson. Um, some of the papers are, you know, Whig papers, and that's why they're anti-Johnson. But others are just anti-Johnson because of his right, sexual relationship with Julia Chen. Um, and so this is that quote comes during the, at the height of the um, the run that Van Buren and Johnson are making for um, the election. So that's in 1836. That this is chapter six of my book basically does an entire examination of. Um, right, what happens during that vice presidential run uh, locally and nationally um, and how the spotlight continually comes back to Julia Chin and her, you know, even though she's deceased, right? She's the ghost that keeps being dug up and crucified over and over again in order to, um, you know, sideline Richard Johnson. And so this is, yeah, that Duff, Duff Green's article from the t- editorial from The Telegraph is at the height of the 36th election for the 37th pre- vice presidency. So when Martin Van Buren runs after his first term and loses, he runs by himself with no vice president. What did he do with Richard Johnson? Well, even though the Democrats had voted in the Senate to vote Richard in um, and confirm his vice presidency, um, in 1836, 1837, they realized very quickly that he was um, really dead weight for their party, that he was going to hurt them politically if they continued to back him. So Jackson quietly sort of stopped backing him after that first term. And so when the when it came back around again, um, you know, for the 1840 run for 1841, 42, um, Jackson said, no, you know, uh, we have to pick a new vice president. And he would, he urged the party to actually consider uh, Polk at that point. But the party was so divided. The party was so like internally, there were so many schisms over North and South, Johnson, not Johnson. I mean, all kinds of things um, that they could not decide upon one vice presidential candidate um, in their you know national convention. And so what happens is Van Buren doesn't choose a running mate. He decides to go it alone. And there are about a half dozen vice presidential contenders who each run individually, independently for the vice presidency. And Richard Johnson is one of them. He refuses to kind of, you know, go gentle into that good night, even though it's clear that his own party doesn't want him. Um, Jackson has turned his back on him. The newspapers hate him. It doesn't matter. 
he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to run. I still have a lot of people who like me. I'm a hero of the of the War of 1812. Um, I'm a hero of the Battle of the Thames, where he was badly injured, took five bullets, almost died. Um, he claims to be um, the guy who killed Tecumseh in the Battle of 18, in the War of 1812, which we don't think he did. But you know, this is he still runs. He fig- and there's a there are a lot of people who turn out for his campaign speeches. But at the end of the day. Uh, Van Buren loses. Johnson loses. Johnson loses so badly that not only does he not take Kentucky, which he had failed to take Kentucky in that first election running up to 36, 37 as well, but he also loses his own home county of Scott County. And Scott County had always supported him. The people in Scott County loved Richard. They elected him to office for 44 years. Because he he also serves in the Kentucky State Legislature. So when you look at the span of his political career, Scott County voters, they always supported Richard. But in this instance, they even don't return their ballots for him. Uh, he was a United States senator you know, in those days appointed by the legislature. He was there from 1819 to 1829. Why did the legislature in Kentucky think he was deserved to be senator? Well, at that point, he's really at the what I you know the noonday. There's an article that says he's at the noonday of his prosperity. Right, he was at the height of his popularity. He was, like I said, a hero of the War of 1812, and had come home badly wounded and almost died. Um, the little people, right, the voters in Kentucky really liked him because he stood up for things that were going to be helpful for the poor and the working class family. Um, for example, um, like when it came to pensions, right, uh, for veterans. Um, he also stood up against um, trying to eliminate Sunday mail delivery because there was a, a hard Christian right back then that didn't want delivery on the Sabbath. And he stood up and was like, I'm a Baptist. My family founded a Baptist church, but there needs to be a separation of church and state, and we need Sunday mail delivery. Um, and so he has... He has this very, um, and he's very outgoing, he's very gregarious, he loves to dance, he's charismatic, he throws huge parties um, at Blue Spring, um, which Julia helps to organize and host, and and they entertain former presidents, they entertain the Marquis de Lafayette, um, and he invites everybody, the whole town, regardless of class, whether you're poor, whether you're rich, everybody comes to Blue Spring Farm for big 4th of July, um, you know, barbecues, um, the big gala for Lafayette. And so there are a lot of, he he has a lot of popularity in Kentucky. And so in 1819, this is, this seems like, oh, well, the seat's being relinquished. We need to fill it. Of course, Johnson's star is on, on the climb. He's, you know, he's, he's from one of the first families of Kentucky, Um, You know, the senior Johnsons uh, came in, they helped his father sign the territorial and the state constitution. His brothers are influential lawmakers, judges, um, attorney generals. I mean, this is one of this is a this is a family that are one percenters. So it is not a surprise that Richard gets the nod in 1819. Uh, It's just surprising that he's able to hold on as long as he does because of his very sort of flagrant in-your-face relationship with an enslaved black woman. You say that Julia Chen was an octoroon. What's that? 
I'll, I actually am not sure, but those are some of, some of the words that were used to describe her. So some people referred to her as mulatto, other people used octoroon. Like these are all words from back in the day. They're not, it's certainly not my language. Those are, those are quotes. Um, we don't know um, exactly what her exact racial background or heritage was. Um, technically, octoroon means someone who is one-eighth African-American. Um, so if you're bi- if you're back then, they sort of assume if you were a mulatto, that meant you had, and these are all words, again, I'm using in quotes, um, if you were called a mulatto, it was because you had one white parent and one black parent. If you were a quadroon, then you had at least one grandparent who was African-American. So we're, you know, there's no way of knowing Julia's lineage because of slavery, right? Because those records were not kept. We do know that her mother, Henrietta, was an enslaved woman. Um, but we also know that bo- that Julia was consistently referred to in different venues as being light-skinned and that her daughters were supposedly light enough to pass. And so that suggests that either Henrietta was already light-skinned herself or that Henrietta had a relationship with a white man and produced two ch- children like Daniel and Julia who were themselves very light-skinned. And because Julia and Daniel, her brother, hold the last name Chin, um, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly certain that they use that last name because they had a white father whose last name was Chin, because there are several um, Kentucky Chin families in the area. In fact, Henry Clay's law partner was a Chin. And so it's not an unusual last name in the bluegrass. And so it's, I, I think there's no other reason that both Daniel and Julia, I think, would have held that name when they grew up. It's a way of, you know, signaling who their father's family is, even if he doesn't claim them. And so if they so that that's that's as much as we can even suppose, because we don't know Henrietta's lineage or background, again, because of the because of how records were not kept for enslaved people back in the 18th and 19th centuries. When you headed off to research Julia Chen, where did you go? Where was there anything about her that you could find? So I've, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of different archives and facilities. I've worked at the um, Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Um, I've also got um, sort of had lot papers sent to me from the National Archives. Um, there are materials out in Kansas at the University of Kansas because many of uh, Richard and Julia's enslaved laborers eventually went out and helped to establish the all-black town of Nicodemus, Kansas, after the Civil War. And so there's records um, in Kansas. Um, the vast majority of my materials are from um, uh, all, close to a dozen different archives scattered through Kentucky. Um, the Filson Historical Society has a batch of records. Um, by It's called the Thomas Henderson Papers. Henderson was um, a Baptist preacher. He was a rotating minister at Great Crossing Baptist Church. He was a longtime friend of the Johnson family, and he eventually became the headmaster of Choctaw Academy, which is an indigenous boarding school on Richard's farm. He, you know, Richard uses his political clout to have this federally funded boarding school on his property because he sees it as a potential cash cow. Um, and so Henderson's papers are at the Filson, and in that collection are letters that Richard wrote 
to Thomas Henderson when Richard was in D.C. and Henderson was living at Blue Spring uh, because he had room and board. So he had, you know, he had a house on the property when he was headmaster of Choctaw. So we don't have the other side of the correspondence, Thomas's letters back to Richard, but we have Richard's letters to Thomas. But there are um, small caches of papers like that. Uh, you know, a lot of public records, wills, census materials, tax records, mortgage records um, in Georgetown, in Scott County, at the Scott County Courthouse, um, at the Kentucky Historical Society, at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Um, Newspapers, of course, UK has a great newspaper collection, as does uh, the main public library in Lexington. So I literally was traveling from little, from, from from small archive to small archive to small archive, sort of collecting every shred and fragment that I could um, on Julia and her daughters and trying to understand what their life would have been like in 18th and 19th century rural Kentucky. Um, And I was also really fortunate that I met and was able to establish connect, you know, communication and relationships with um, a handful of descendants of the family. And I, I interviewed them. Um, I flew out to Arizona um, and met with uh, one descendant and, and, and saw the art, her family archives of materials that she had collected. Um, I also went to Ohio and interviewed um, two other women who are sisters who are descendants, and they opened up their family archives to me, and so I digitized and, re- and collected as much material as I could from the descendants, not just by the interviews, but also from their family personal archives, and, and added those to the collection that I had. And so it was really a, a really a matter of being very diligent about leaving no stone unturned because even though Julia and her daughters were literate, we don't have their record. We don't have their records, unfortunately. We don't have their firsthand letters or information. There isn't even a large Richard Johnson library or collection anywhere in the country, even though he was in politics for 44 years. Um, it's kind of astonishing and it seems very clear to me from the research that I've done that his his existing um, white kinfolk, his brothers, um, destroyed all of his papers after he, he passed away in an effort to take his land and money and property for themselves, disinherit uh, Richard's daughter, Imogene, who was still living, um, and sort of wipe any trace of Julia and her and her kin off the face of the planet because they were embarrassed by their brother's behavior. How did those relatives live today? Do they live as white people or do they live as mixed race, the ones that you talk to? So the descendants that I've spoken to, I spoke to um, a half dozen, and uh, four of them um, didn't even know until much later in life that they were descended from Richard Johnson and Julia Chin. Uh, they identify as white because they're fa- those families several generations ago at some point in the early 20th century not only crossed the color line but stopped telling their descendants um, about their heritage. And so it wasn't until the 1990s that many that these these four individuals who identify as white knew that they were anything but white. They they had no idea that there was black heritage in their family. Um, and there were and there are two folks who I interviewed who um, very clearly identify as African American. Um, they come from a branch of the family that uh, didn't pass, never attempted to pass, was very open um, about their heritage and uh, continued to marry uh, other black people throughout the 20th century. Um, but you have, you have this happening all within 
uh, the same place in Scott County. It's, uh, you know, you've got people right in Kentucky who were growing up and being raised side by side, some of whom eventually began to identify as white and others who remained African-American. This line from your book, I wanted you to talk more about it. Julia's story reveals how white supremacy warps everyone. Well, thank you for asking me that. Uh, It's actually one of, in my opinion, one of the most important points that I try to make in the book. Um, I sort of half-jokingly said to a friend uh, last week that this is a book that um, is going to make everybody uncomfortable. Um, there are no there are no heroes in this book. It's a story of survival. It's a story of what a woman like Julia Chin, who is enslaved and becomes, you know, you know, we don't know the original terms under which her relationship with Richard began. We don't know how coercive it was, how violent it was. But we do know that she was very young. When you have a young girl who's enslaved, who's been taken away from her mother and then uh put into this circumstance where she has to engage in a relationship with a powerful white man. I mean, she could say no, but what would that gain her? He could, he, he could assault her anyway. He could sell her, um, you know, all, all kinds of things. So she engages in this relationship in order to survive, in order to make a better life for her children and her grandchildren. Her goals are very clear, um, you know, freedom for her children and grandchildren, property, legal marriages, good education, all the things that she never was able to acquire for herself. Um, and But that's a, that's a story that is really hard to hear because of the violence, right, the sexual violence, the coercion, um, the fact that she becomes uh, an overseer, essentially, over other enslaved people at Blue Spring Farm when her husband is in Washington, D.C. These are things that are really, really hard for us to read and to hear about. Um, but it's equally... So white, but what, it's white supremacy doesn't leave her much other, uh, much many other choices in this case. She's an enslaved teenager, right? And so what are her options that are going to get her family the furthest? And so she makes a lot of choices that, that, are, that just are um, horrifying, right? When we consider them in the larger sort of light of day. Um, but white people don't look good in this book either, right? I mean, this is white supremacy we're talking about. This is in slavery that we're talking about. We're talking about a lot of men who are engaging in relationships with very, very young girls. Um, You know, how much choice does a black woman have when she's enslaved, Um, right? Maybe she complies, but compliance is not the same as consent, right? Enslavement means that consent really can't exist. And so they comply, compliance, I mean, so white people don't look good, right? The violence, the, the sexual predation, right? The things that the things that are happening in the press that we read about, it's a nobody in this book comes out smelling good. Basically, um, it's a hard story to read in a lot of ways, but I think it's really important that we read it and understand that that's how disastrous and damaging white supremacy is. That's how damaging racism is, right? It hurts everyone. It tears apart families. It caused Julia's kin to eventually cross the color line and lie about who they were because at the height of segregation and Jim Crow, the fear of being black and losing everything outweighed their willingness to be honest about who they were. And so they passed and they lied about who they were to their own descendants 
Julia was er erased from the memory of her own family. Why? Because we live in a society that denigrates blackness, that privileges whiteness, and that says that black is bad, right? The anti-blackness has been here for centuries, and it literally, on the, on the, we talk about it on the state level with laws, but this is how it affects individuals and families on the ground, where people have to make terrible decisions from very limited choices, comply to things that they would nev never have complied to if they were truly free, and then you end up with erasure, national erasure from the history books and erasure even within your own family's memory of who you were and what you did. Former Speaker of the House Henry Clay and former presidential candidate Henry Clay from Kentucky, you say he did not vote for Johnson. Uh, were they in the same party? And secondly, he had relationships, as you say, with black women, enslaved women in Kentucky, but he didn't do it like Richard Johnson. He did it on the QT. Explain all that. Right. Um Clay and Johnson are near neighbors in Kentucky. They, their plantations are not far from each other. They also are chronologically of the same age, like generation. They come up through the ranks together. They, are, um, they make their mark as uh, war hawks, right? Voting in favor of the War of 1812 when they are young congressmen together. So generationally, you're talking about Henry Clay, Richard Johnson, Daniel Webster, um, and also John C. Calhoun from South Carolina, right? These really young, you know, young hotshot, rising stars in politics um, in, in the early 19th uh, century. And um, eventually, Henry Clay will become, Henry Clay tries to win the presidency under a number of different political parties. And so which party Clay belongs to, it depends on which moment in history you're talking about. Um, he eventually will run for the presidency under the Whig um, umbrella. But, you know, Clay is, you know, argue, on, probably not without much argument, uh, one of, you know, one of the most, if not the most famous sort of Kentucky statesmen of the 19th century. You know, he helps to author the Missouri Compromise of 1820, and also the Compromise of 1850, both of which saved the Union uh, from splitting apart into war at that point, at those points. He's also, he has a white wife, he has white children. He is definitely one of those, uh, you know, one percenters, very powerful man. But unlike, as you pointed out, unlike Johnson, um, so like Johnson, he has sexual relationships with black women. But unlike Johnson, he has his white wife and white family out front in the, in the plantation home. And he hides his relationship with black women in the quarters. Um, but everybody knows about it. It's one of these things that is an open secret. Everyone knows about it. They gossip about it. But, but like Thomas Jefferson, he never admits it. Jefferson never acknowledges his relationship with Sally Hemings. He never acknowledges their children together. He doesn't live with them. He doesn't free them. Sally Hemings doesn't entertain at Monticello, right? It's the same thing with Henry Clay. Henry Clay has these relationships in the quarters, but one day his wife catches him in the act. She follows him to the quarters and she catches him in a very, you know, um, incriminating embrace, right, with his uh, with the enslaved black woman that he was having sex with, and right, all hell breaks loose at Ashland, right, the, the the Clay family plantation, and in order to keep the peace, Clay sells the the woman and their children downriver to Louisiana, 
right? Gets rid of the evidence, makes his wife happy, keeps the peace in the family. And there are there are letters that people are writing about how, like, how can you vote for Clay? You know, the Whigs claim to be anti-slavery. And here's this man who not only had a relationship with um, an enslaved woman, but sold her and their children downriver. They said, say what you want to about Richard Johnson. You know, he never has sold his, he never sold his children, right? He raised them, he educated them, he took care of them. And so there's this, um, I think this is a big part of the reason why we still know who Henry Clay is today. I mean, people are like, oh, we never remember the vice presidents. Well, Henry Clay was never a president, but we remember Clay. We remember the, you know, the bills that he authored. We, rem- we know his, his plantation is in existence. You can go to Ashland and have your wedding there, have a party there, take a tour there for 20 bucks. It's beautiful, right? But Blue Spring Farm, nobody, who's Richard Johnson? Who was Julia Chen? Where is Blue Spring Farm? I mean, the contrast is stark. And I think it's like that because Clay knew on which side his bread was buttered and he adhered to right, sort of the, the, the social rule book of the time, right? When you're a rich, white, powerful man, there are still rules you have to follow if you want to climb that ladder. And he was like, oh, no, my, you know, all these men are having these relationships, but they're lying about it. They're hiding it. Because, it, again, that newspaper article that said, if only Johnson had been discreet, the voters could have forgiven him anything, right? So there's there's Henry Clay, who lives just up the road, um, you know, in his big plantation, and how different the two men are are sort of talked about in the 19th century, but even today, uh, the difference in terms of their popularity and name recognition is really stark and significant. So how many times have you driven to Scott County, to the Blue Spring Farm, to the Great Crossing Baptist Church, to the Choctaw Academy, and then once you get there, what do you see? No, I mean, I've, I've spent so much time in Kentucky over the last 12 years, um, winter breaks, summer breaks, spring breaks. (laughs) Um, I moved myself down there lock, stock and barrel one summer um, just to, you know, be there and to do the work that I needed to do. Um, And I've been really, really blessed to meet, you know, a lot of local historians and genealogists who I talk about in my book who have also, you know, shared with me their their resources, their time, introduced me to people, shared their papers with me, uh, Ann Bolton Bevins and Ellie Caroland in particular. Uh, So I've spent a lot of time um, in Kentucky, in different parts of Kentucky. But when you drive down to Scott County today, um, Great Crossing Baptist Church is still there. It's not the original building that Julia and Richard would have worshipped in. That building was destroyed in the 1920s by a tornado, and a new building was built in its place. But So it existed from the 1790s until the 1920s, which is a pretty long run. Um, for for a church, but they rebuilt the church in the 1920s. That's the building that you'll see there. But if you go around back, you'll see the Johnson family cemetery that I mentioned where Richard and Jemima Suckett Johnson are buried and various other Johnson kinfolk are buried. Um, If you go to Blue Spring Farm, you'll have to get permission to walk onto the property because it is owned by four different sets of private owners. And the back portion of the land Uh, where the house would have been um, is owned by one individual on the left side of the driveway. The one remaining Choctaw Academy building still stands. And um, Chip Richardson and his wife own that piece of land. And Chip has been doing 
incredible work locally with local historians, the Scott County Historical Society, to save that building, to preserve it, to have it made a national landmark. And he's working with um, indigenous folks, um, right, to, to sort of save this building from falling into the ground. Um, on the right side of the driveway, it's a long driveway to get down to, um, you know, this portion of the property. It was 2,000 acres at one point, right? This was a big, big plantation, right? Um, on the right side of the property, two different uh, doctors own uh, the land, uh, you know, sort of side by side on that side. Um, and so it, it's a really driving that you can't just drive onto the property. You would have to, like, reach out to the folks who live there and get permission. And I was, I was really fortunate that um, I've been able to do that um, and walk on the property, take photographs um, and, and see the one remaining slave quarters kitchen building on the right side of the driveway, the Choctaw Academy building on the left. I've never been able to go up past the end of the driveway, up the hill to where the main house would have been. Uh, the gentleman who owns that piece of property has never given anyone permission as far as I know to do that. And so I've, I've not ever been able to get up that far, but I've, I've been able to see the land on either side that I was given permission to walk on. A couple of <clears throat> quick things. How severely was he wounded, meaning Richard Johnson, and when he was a colonel uh, at the Battle of Thames? Uh, he almost died. Uh, it was a suicide charge that, um, that he led at that point in the Battle of the Thames. Um, the war was not going well for the American forces, and um, William Henry Harrison was actually over all of the American forces, uh, but Richard and his brother were in charge of this large uh, contingent, and um, they basically, Richard decided that the only way that they were going to break through um, the British and their Native American allies, the, you know, that sort of force, uh, was um, a head-on suicide charge. And to, to Richard's credit, he didn't put, you know, other men out front. He didn't sort of hide in the back. He was on his horse, um, right? And he led his Kentucky regulators into this suicide charge into a barrage of musket fire, right? Into a barrage of rifle fire. Um, and from what we understand, he took at least five bullets that day. His horse was shot out from underneath him. People, t It was like a glorious white steed. Like, that's how they talk about the horse. But he had his horse shot out from under him. He was badly wounded, almost killed. Five bullets, arm, stomach, you know. Um, he was carried back home on a stretcher from the Battle of the Thames down to Kentucky. And when he arrived, he was pretty much at death's door. No one thought that he would make it. But Julia Chin had medical knowledge. And she was actually known for being a very, very good healer. In fact, she would run the Choctaw Academy Medical uh, medical Ward um, when the school was in session. And she helped to save a lot of students' lives. She nursed people during the cholera epidemic as well and saved a lot of people's lives before she herself passed away. She takes over charge of, of Richard's, you know, medical care and healing process. And, um, you know, it's amazing that he survives. But he doesn't just survive. He, you know, by you know by the new year, he is you know up on crutches, you know, walking around, going to dinners, and then he hauls himself up on a horse and rides all the way back to Washington D.C. on horseback, determined to retake his seat in Congress. Now, I'm I'm probably going to mispronounce this name. You have to help me. Is it Parthene? Parthene? 
It's Parthine. Well, we say I, I the re, the way I've been saying it is Parthine. And who was she? Oh, you're going to make me give away all my secrets in my book. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. There's a lot more. We're not getting to. We're about done here, but there's a lot I more. I know. Than, I know. So Parthine is. Um, I I think I had mentioned that the the book that I originally read, the survey book I had originally read all those years ago, talked about Richard Johnson and his many concubines, plural, right? Not language that I use. I don't use concubine. I don't use mistress. But um, so there were other women after Julia died that Richard had sexual relationships with who were also enslaved black women from his plantation. Um, There's no record that we have uh, that he had uh, any of these relationships while Julia was living. Um, Like, nobody talks about him being with anybody until after she passed away. But then he, the first woman that he um, begins a relationship with after Julia's death, within probably within six months of her dying, actually, is this um, young woman named Parthine, who is an enslaved laborer on the Johnson plantation. And um, we, again, the records are very scarce, but from the work that I've done and the, like the, the fragments that I've been able to find, Parthine may well have been Daniel Chin's daughter. Daniel Chin was Julia's brother. Uh, if that's if that's the case, which I'm I'm very very sure is true, then Parthine was Julia's niece, and she would have been raised at Blue Spring Farm, alongside um, her cousins Imogene and Adeline, Richard and Julia's daughters. Um, she was a member of the of the house staff, uh, so and she, the house staff, the girls of the house staff were tutored at night and educated by Thomas Henderson, headmaster of Choctaw Academy. So she she grew up there um, with her with her aunt and uncle, with her parents, alongside her cousins, being educated, working as a, in a sewing position in the house. Um, her aunt, protect, Julia, protects her kin, gives them better jobs, brings them into the house, oversees their lives. But once her aunt is gone and is no longer there to protect her, um, she is uh, forced into a sexual relationship with the man that she would have looked at as her uncle for the majority of her life. We're, we're about out of time, but I need to ask you, um, how, how old was Richard Johnson when he died? And did he have dementia? And what did he die of? So he was 70. He passed away in 1850 and he was born in 1780. And um, he had had... For years, people had been saying that his behavior had been erratic, um, that he would go on long sort of rants, um, rambling speeches, would tear open his clothes at political speeches to show show people his war wounds, that his behavior was becoming increasingly erratic in the late 1840s. Um, But he's reelected to the State House in 1850. He has a stroke. And his doctors tell him not to not to go to work. He needs to rest. He's lucky he's alive. He still goes to work, goes to the state house, tries to conduct business and gives make speeches. And people are saying it's painful to see him trying to to work because he's clearly not in his right mind. He's, he doesn't have, you know, he's not in his right faculties. And then he has a subsequent stroke, which kills him um, in 1850. Uh, so did he, or did he not have dementia? I I don't know. I'm not a medical doctor, but, um, the strokes certainly affected his body and his mind. 
Uh, whether or not he had dementia prior to that, there are some indications that he was beginning to exhibit erratic mental behavior, certainly. There's plenty more in this book we haven't talked about, including uh, Julia Chen's two daughters. So there's plenty to read in The Vice President's Black Wife, The Untold Life of Julia Chen. And our guest has been Amrita Chakrabarty Myers, Indiana University professor. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.